Hey everybody, welcome to another Making a Geek. I am Damien DiCarlo. Uh, here with me, I have the wonderfully talented, at always being her, Avatar Stone is here. Hi there. And also joining me today are the returning guests from Fanbase Press, Barbara and Bryant Dillon. Welcome everybody. Hello, thanks for having us. Hello. I'm so happy we're together again. We're going to talk about Star Wars, um, and we are on to Star Wars Episode 2, and... Um, this one is a very interesting movie because looking back, I, I think very differently of it now than I did um, when it first came out. Then I thought differently of it midway through, maybe 10 years after that. But then now I have a completely different opinion <laughs> going back to it. Well, funny enough, Brian and I, I feel like, have rewatched this movie a number of times within the past two yeah. years, I would say, um, leading up to the launch of Rise of Skywalker. We did multiple, like, watch throughs of the entire Star Wars saga. Um, so we, we've definitely had our hand at, at rewatching it and, and kind of seeing it through uh, new eyes. I will fully admit that like you, Damien, when I first saw Attack of the Clones, I very sadly to Bryant uh, said, I think that's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> not, not even just um, the worst Star Wars, just the worst. No, no the worst movie ever. It was the worst. We walked I very of, excitedly took her to the, see this film. and uh, <laughs> We walked out of the theater and that's the first thing I said to him. That was so the, he's, yeah. He's very sad. Um, oh, well. I have come to appreciate uh, the good things of Attack of the Clones. Um, I, it's definitely not my least favorite Star Wars movie ever. Um, but I definitely see the flaws. And I think it's I think it's a kind of yin and yang thing that I can see the flaws, but I can see why it's necessary. I can see what the benefits of the movie are and the good points of the movie. So um, it's it's become something that I can watch and find enjoyable moments or aspects of it. What about you? Um, yeah, I'm the same, I guess. I uh, I did really enjoy it the first time that I saw it in theaters. I was just, I think I was so excited to see things that I waited uh, for so long to see on screen. The idea, like the arena scene with multiple Jedi uh, f fighting, um, I was really attached to, I think maybe I was primed to be attached to the Anakin and uh, Padme characters. I was... I was born in 1982. Hayden Christensen was born in 1981. So we were essentially this, the same age. I was in, uh, in acting uh, school, college at the time, um, doing a lot of stage work. And I had been raised on stories of uh, individuals who are members of the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, you know, in between their, their plays, uh, you know, Getting, uh, sneaking out for screenings of the 1977 uh, Star Wars or the, the 1980 Empire and how, what an interesting mix it was to have Shakespeare and Star Wars together. And so I, I think I not only idolized the idea of the role of Anakin Skywalker and that story, but also uh, Barbara and I were uh, romantically involved in college, continue to be, but that was the beginning. The timing. Um, oh, okay. Yes. It's yeah. about the timing. And, <laughs> and Barbara was, there was all these little things that for, as a, as a young, you know, uh, starstruck individual, I guess, you know, uh, you know, wearing my heart on my sleeve, played into it. Barbara was a, a political major. We had to keep our relationship, uh, quote unquote, secret for, 
undisclosed at this point reasons. But um, so there was like this secret romance going on where Barbara and I were like, you know, catching a, uh, stealing a kiss here in a, a corner there, like in the library here. And so I think it all played into me relating uh, or connecting really, really closely to these characters and very easily forgiving like, you know, plot holes and, and things like that, rough acting. Um, but what I will say is going uh, back, what I think is, it's very similar to what I feel about a lot of the prequels. I, there are big flaws that, are, that this movie has, uh, places where it does not work or it's, it's trying for something very ambitious and doesn't get there. But I also feel like along with episode one, episode three, I think fans attack these movies for the wrong reasons uh, a lot of times. I don't think that the, thing, the, the complaints or the uh, critiques lobbed against it are always true. Like, and for, just for a quick example, a lot of people give uh, Hayden Christensen a really rough time because Anakin is seen as whiny, um, which, you know, his acting uh, set aside, the idea that the character would have that, that, that would be somewhat immature, would struggle with his, his this great amount of power, um, or would be somewhat similar to the Luke Skywalker we met in A New Hope, isn't, isn't that crazy, you know? Not so, at all, not at all. So I think that that is representative of some of the ways I think that maybe some the, sometimes the film is unfairly critiqued. I get you. Uh, and in fact, uh, Avatar, you, you <laughs> kind of paralleled a little bit of Anakin with Luke. That's what I've been speaking about for who knows how long. Um, I feel, I've always felt that there's a huge parallel between them in that you see in A New Hope, Luke is talking to his aunt and uncle and he says, but I just want to go to power converters. And he gets kind of whiny. And there's definitely a familial connection there. I see the point to it. I'm still not happy with it. <laughs> I'll say this. I'll Get say, you know, I mean, Hayden Christensen, about our age, Brian, about the time, uh, I think it would be very difficult as an actor to be told, okay, act like a brat. Because he kind of had to, He, like you said, he had all those, you know, struggles. Um, so I just kind of feel like maybe he kind of did well at that. And maybe I'll give him that, you know. I think, and I think Damien, to your point as well, and I think that's something <clears throat> that mainstream audiences may not get, but that uh, having worked in, in acting and having worked with the crew behind the scenes, especially going, this was his first Star Wars film, so going into work with George Lucas uh, and George in a directorial role, not just like a writer-producer role, um, you can watch endless amounts of behind the scenes footage of what it was to be uh, on the set with George and his directorial style, which admittedly as uh, having acted myself is terrible. No, it's not actor friendly. It's not actor friendly. There are many different, uh, as with everything in life, there are many different approaches that you can take to different things. As a director, you can be hands off, you can be hands on. Um, and some people just don't understand what it is to be an actor, what actors need in terms of motivation. Uh, and there's, the thing that a lot of actors don't like, some do, but most don't like line readings, which is like, I want you to say the line like this, verbatim, <laughs> tonally, everything. And that's the kind of director George is because he has a very specific vision of what he wants. Right. That's not necessarily to say that that's a good thing. It doesn't always get the best <laughs> yeah. performance. It doesn't yeah. get the yeah. best performance. And, and we've seen that from behind the scenes of the original movies as well. The 
four, five, and six that uh, he, he was much more hands off and the actors just kind of felt, you know, they were good actors. So they did. Well, you can they... even see that with Ewan McGregor, who's yeah. a, a, a much more experienced actor than both yeah. Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen at the time and is able to take a lot of rough dialogue and probably difficult direction or lack of direction and make it work. Um, and the other thing that people forget, they think that a lot of people assume that the big technology jump with CGI was in episode one. Actually, a lot of episode one was miniatures. And this was the big green screen or blue screen uh, movie. And so these actors are also somewhat like pioneers. They were the first ones that were like, hey, stand in this like blue square and just imagine everything. <laughs> that ball over there, that's a character. That ball's a character, and then you. That's it, you know? And, yeah. and that's hard. That's really yeah, hard. Yeah, it's really it hard, hard. For, for a young actor yeah. and, and, and taking on, on all that stuff. And, and the one other thing that I will add to the awkwardness that I don't think is necessarily, I don't know how intentional it was, but we, the characters, when we look at them, it kind of reminds me of, of Finn from the sequel trilogy a little bit, where we never saw them really tap into what, being a child soldier or being separated from your parents would have uh, as a psychological effect on you, how that would, that would be perpetuated forward. I think that George, to some degree, wanted to write these characters to be uh, awkward and un uncomfortable in these scenarios. I mean, it's a, it's a, a Jedi Knight who does not interact with, with uh, you know, girls that he has crushes on, does not pursue right. these things. Right. And, and uh, uh, a child leader who has been, her life has been devoted to politics 100%. You know, she, she doesn't make room for things like this very often in her life. And they have a few cut scenes that you can find for Attack of the Clones that kind of flesh that out a little bit. But it still feels like that thing that George Lucas has sometimes where he's like, he has the kernel of the idea. But the execution doesn't completely yeah. win out there. And then some things like the sand scene, you know, that gets mocked a lot, you know, the sand being harsh. All the, when you look at the basics, the pieces of the scene, you're like, well, it makes sense that Anakin would feel this way, you know, living on Tatooine. It makes sense that they would have this awkwardness between them because they're flirting in a way that is almost below their, their age level, below their maturity level because they don't use these tools. But the storytelling isn't put together well enough for us as an audience to come along completely for that. You almost have to make some of it up in your head for it to work. I can see that. And I, we've talked about it in the last episode when we covered episode one that, you know, George is a visionary. And when it comes to his vision, you try to get it out as, as best as you can. But when it comes to directing, that's a whole other story. You're trying to direct characters, uh, actors. But I think you just, like you said, Barbara, just kind of like read this line, just do it. And he just needs that vision to come out, but it doesn't always come out or translate the way maybe he wanted. Or... So that's where I feel very unfortunate in that I already knew that so many people hated these movies before I sat down and watched them. And I didn't get to go into them with a fresh set of eyes and go, I'm right. just going right. to see what I think of these movies. Right. I already hated them. Yeah. I went in going, these are bad. I'm just going to watch them and I'm going to know they're bad. You, you got influenced by, you know, the, the critiquing of, of certain geeks out there that yeah. have a problem with it. And I, I think at the end of the day, that does make a difference to someone brand new watching these prequel films. It's not going to be the same that it was for, say, Barbara, Brian and I or, or whoever saw it the first day of. And it's like, OK, yeah. we think of it very differently. Um, but I was I, a little young when they came out. I think I was only 
1999. Uh, that was, was the first one, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, I was seven. Okay. So I was yeah. a bit young to really understand the movies. Sure. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and especially seeing a prequel film without knowing four, five, and six, I think would, and I said this recently with someone, I think that would that would translate very differently for someone than it would for people that grew up with four, five, and six, and then looking back to episode one, mm-hmm. you're looking at it differently. You're looking at all these things that you're you're getting hit with yeah, that, are, sure. that are prequelish that you're like, this means this, that fight means that. But for someone that doesn't know four, five, and six, it's like, I'm taking it for what it is. Take for example, Boba Fett. Anyone mm-hmm. seeing one, two, and three has no idea who this kid is. Anyone that's right. seen five and six, not four, five, and six, but five and six goes, oh, oh, that's Boba Fett. Personally, that's my favorite character. <laughs> I remember watching the documentary, The People versus George Lucas, which really examines like, the backlash from the, pre- the prequels and whether it was valid and not. And th- it's interesting, they have a whole section um, with parents and they're talking about their children and their, their experience of Star Wars. And some of these children, they just grow up with, oh, there's six Star Wars now. Oh, there's nine Star Wars now. You know, it's not, it's not like there is a division, it's all Star Wars for them. Or you could come in through the Clone Wars or Rebels or, uh, some of these, they even have younger um, uh, aimed series that are based through the Lego franchise and stuff like that. And so what is really interesting is you have, you used to have like a divide. It was like, oh, like it's, there was the original, the OG like fans. And then there was the the next generation. And now we have like multiple, multiple different types of Star Wars fans who are gr- at different ages, who have different views on the characters. And like you were saying, saying Damien have different experiences maybe they knew you know Darth Vader was Anakin always maybe they saw the episodes one through nine or maybe they had someone who was like no watch these ones first or even for me I know that a lot of the ability to go back to the prequels and enjoy them more is because I've become such a fan of the Clone Wars animated series and that adds so much mythology and extra uh, character development to those characters that when you go back to the movies, you're like, well, now I'm adding this other stuff that I have watched in this series or read here. And I guess maybe I was also primed for that as a as a Star Wars fan who was coming up shortly after the film, the original film started because there was a dead period where all you did was read uh, novels or RPG games right. and like sort of integrate that knowledge into the movies. You're like, oh, well, Boba Fett's thinking this is at this scene or, Exactly. Just off, off screen, something like this happens. And now that's become part of what Star Wars is to a degree. And it allows all these open doors for people to come in from all sorts of different directions. It has replay actually, value, definitely. That's actually a point that I was thinking about is what about all those kids that grew up in between uh, trilogies and grew up watching Clone Wars on Cartoon Network? It's, it's a completely skewed perspective. What about kids like me that read Dark Horse comics right. growing up and and read Boba Fett clawing out of the Sarlacc pit? It's mm-hmm. a completely different perspective. Right. That's why I love Boba Fett personally so much. That's why he's my favorite character because he's bad A. And <laughs> he's, he, that's just, that's my perspective. A sure, kid that yeah. grows up with four, five, and six and then never sees anything else is just going to have that perspective. Right. And I think that that's what, what I was saying earlier, how kids that like, like you have, it's all that started with four, five and six, maybe 
that will give you a little bit more forgiveness as, as to what, what happens in episodes one, two, and three when you rewatch because you know even just yeah. the small facts of, okay, this kid's going to become Darth Vader. He's going to be part of the Empire that's going to face Luke and all, all that cool stuff that happens in four, five, and six. And that's where like the Clone Wars series will kind of give that um, – it fills in the blanks and then it makes you appreciate certain things that you do see that – that you didn't really notice in episode two when you rewatch it, like, oh, this happens. I, I know th- what this is in reference of. Um, yeah. So I this think that kind of character has a name and a history and isn't just like a figure. Yeah. <laughs> isn't actually. just Darth Vader. He's not. Yeah. He's not a guy too, just getting slaughtered right yeah. now. There's reason Jedi for- <laughs> with weird face. Yeah. No, he has a name, and you know, you've seen him do things in other series. Yeah. Yeah. Bar- Barbara, I'm dying to ask you now with with Clone Wars since that got you into it. How do you see episode two specifically in your, in your opinion, looking at it now? Honestly, and Brian and I, Brian and I talk about Star Wars all the time, just in daily <laughs> life. So we were having this interesting conversation about it yesterday that what's fascinating to me now as I look back uh, at all the entire saga, so one, two, three, and then four, five, six, and even the sequels, is that to me, this, this saga has always been Anakin's story. Um, even though he has such a, a minimal role, perhaps visually in uh, seven, eight, and nine, I think his legacy and what he was hoping to achieve deep down is so relevant and impactful uh, to all of the characters in the saga, and has always been. And so I think that you really start to see that come to fruition in episode two. Um, because you're seeing him as a young man, you're seeing what um, what impact the death of Qui-Gon Jinn has had, what impact the loss of his mother in the sense of being taken away from her, and then of course the eventual death uh, of his mother. You're starting to really see the impact that these things have on him um, and what that will do to him and his downfall and rise again. Um, so I, I, I guess I find that to be most fascinating um, because I think this is the film when you, when you really start to get that. But what is re- also really interesting about this film, I, when, and you sort of made me think of this, Barbara, saying that, is I feel like a lot of us would have thought that this film is going to be part of the uh, like slow downfall of Anakin. I always assumed we're going to see that over the course of three films. And it feels like everything with his downfall happens in the third film. And it's almost like this film is teeing up things that could go either way. You know, like it obviously, obviously he has that incident with the the Tusken Raiders, which is a a real misstep. (laughs) But it, it almost reminds me of the another weird scene where where Obi-Wan Kenobi is captured by Count Dooku. And Count Dooku does this weird thing that is really never explained where he like basically tells him the whole plan. He's like, hey man, what if I told you a Sith is running this whole thing? They're, they're making up the entire war. He was responsible for episode one. And Obi-Wan's just like, no, that's crazy. <laughs> and then well, James like, Bond was very popular at the time. They <laughs> right. had to take a little bit from there. Right. Uh, but but what I, I guess what I find interesting about that is you can literally take that scene and go like, what, you know, you can uh, imagine what is going on, what the the strategy uh, for Count Dooku is. There's part of me that believes maybe he was trying to, that if Obi-Wan was willing to join him, that maybe he wanted to uh, absurd, uh, usurp uh, Palpatine 
or uh, maybe it's a, a continued uh, way to just kind of erode the Jedi's belief in the foundation. You know, he's giving him this bit of information that he'll take back to the Jedi Council and they'll continue to kind of live in fear and keep the secret. But the, the main point being like, it's almost like when we get to Attack of the Clones, it's not a definitive yet that Anakin is going to fall, that the Republic is going to fall. There's still an opportunity for the Jedi to save things. There's still an opportunity for Obi-Wan and Anakin to connect and unite instead of going apart, uh, or for Anakin to, to deal with some of his inner turmoil. And uh, instead, we see all the wrong choices be made in episode three, where, again, I think uh, I naturally assumed, as much of the audience did, um, that we would see this gradually. And I even remember Hayden Christensen uh, commenting in interviews uh, that there was some frustration because he was being told to hold back on a lot of like this uh, darker uh, ways he was playing scenes because George didn't want that yet. So it's just, it's an interesting how different George's perspective of these stories was from right. I think the the popular perspective. Well, right. Like, and I and I certainly don't want to monopolize the conversation. I just want to say one other brief thing. It, it, to, to your point, Bryant, is that from a psychological perspective, if you approach the character of Anakin very much to what you were just saying, it's that uh, as human beings uh, from a mental health perspective, we can be predisposed to mental health uh, diseases or mental health conditions based on the traumas that we experience and based on other uh, what are called risk factors uh, that exist uh, in our daily life, whether they be something that we are genetically predisposed to or life events that we are predisposed to. Uh, and so the same is the case if you look at Anakin's story that you know he uh, was raised by a single mother, the mother gets taken away, uh, and then he has a father figure, that father figure is taken away, and then his actual mother is taken away. So he has these repeated things that keep happening to him that are causing further trauma and that are risk factors to be predisposed to, uh, in this case, you know, falling, we'll just use the, the catch-all falling to the dark side. Um, but like Brian is saying, just because individuals have these risk factors doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to go one way or another in life or to follow Absolutely. a certain path or to have specific mental health conditions. There are different things that can help them. And I think what makes the saga such a, a, a brilliant um, tragedy that you get to experience is you see all of these risk factors and all of these traumas that continue to add up and add up and make complete sense as to why you end up with Darth Vader. Um, but then you get things like the Clone Wars now, and I won't give any spoilers in case anyone is not up to date on the Clone Wars, but when you see additionally all of the things that characters like Obi-Wan and Yoda and Ahsoka could have done, um, but that just didn't connect and didn't happen. And so of course, all of those, again, all of those risk factors and all of those traumas kept adding up. And unfortunately they, they led to Darth Vader. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think a lot of uh, these elements don't guarantee a bad outcome in a person's character by any means, but I feel like, I feel, I believe in paths. So I feel like everything's a path and you have options laid out before you and you can, you can really feel what your outcome will be according to what you choose. I just feel like in this story with uh, Anakin, there was a lot of ways he could have been out of this realm of being uh, consumed by the darkness of the dark side. 
Um, but he chose to continue. He chose to do these things. And even though he had a, um, a, a terrible series of events that happened to him that lend the, the opportunity to go this way, he could have easily turned away, but he didn't. And, and I think he, he found solace with uh, Palpatine being his father figure and then the identity of Darth Vader being a brand new start. And it was control. It was all these things that appealed to him to feel like, finally, I have control of something in my life because everything was yanked away from me. Well, and at that point, I think, too, when we get to the point that he's in the suit uh, and has because, I mean, we uh, he pretty much makes the choice to go to the dark side for Padme, the idea that he will some way be able to save her life. Once that is gone, once you have that scene where he is in the suit and aware that she no longer exists, I think there's also uh, on in addition to falling into the, the um, comfortability of what you're saying, all he has left is to deliver the pain he feels inside on others. You know, that's almost the only reason he exists at that point. And it seems like there is, they've explored it sort of interestingly in the comics, but there's an unexplored uh, portion, I think, in the saga for a lot of uh, people who just view the, the films where you don't see the change between the Anakin at episode three, at, at the end of episode three and the beginning of episode four, where he has spent, you know, a period of years just unleashing this this pain and this anger on others as a way to exist because it's all that he has left essentially right well i think i think that also shows that george lucas may have actually known more of what he was doing than we originally thought sure maybe at least in psychology because how many instances do you see of kids that are traumatized and then end up committing that trauma onto others for the rest of their lives right exactly so i think he yeah and well, and, and it also makes you look at the, as you continue down the line, it makes you look at things like Empire Strikes Back differently because sure, we all viewed it as what a huge moment for Luke Skywalker to have this revelation to go back through the story and be like, wait, this is when Anakin is going from, I have nothing in my life. All I have is, hey, wait a minute, my son is still alive? Yeah. How does that change your entire perspective and make you rethink everything you're doing and then start making you rethinking your relationship with with your father figure palpatine and how does that change and lead into what we see in return of the jedi so yeah. there's a i think there is a lot to to be mined from sometimes we see very minimal things on screen but there's a lot to be mined from absolutely They're, yeah they go a lot deeper than many would see with you what you were saying brian that george had a lot to hold back in episode two um and and i think that while Hayden Christensen may have been a little bit frustrated because he knew exactly where this was going and he was eager to portray it. Sure, yeah. It was it was smart because I feel that if you would have had some of these elements come out in episode two, episode three wouldn't have been as impactful and it wouldn't it would have been a little redundant. Like, okay, we've already seen it. We've seen him getting darker, darker. In this case, it was just the like you said, it was the tee off. It was the the setup, you know, right for what was gonna be episode three was just everything everything hitting the wall Well, i think that's that he was going for maybe the same albeit a lot of people knew what was going to happen in the future but i think he may have been going for the same kind of shocking revelation but backwards as you yeah. see in episode six so in episode six we all saw before one two and three he's redeemed in episode three we see oh he's gone over to the dark side it's, it's maybe a bit of a shock factor that he was going for. 
The one thing else I would add is um, that I think is interesting when, when maybe looking for anyone who's listening, who's looking for like, where do I find this patience to revisit the prequels? Um, how do I get, how do I get back in? Um, I think one thing we've talked about a lot is preconceived notions that people came to with the prequels because we had lived with the original trilogy for so long. And I think that was one of the biggest struggles that audiences had was that our notion of what a Jedi is, what the Republic was, how Anakin went uh, dark was built up on those films as opposed to in sync with what George Lucas was thinking. And so we had to almost like fight against everything he was trying to tell us about, like what we knew about Star Wars, because we were going, no, that's not Star Wars. We know Star Wars. Um, So like an example would be like, well, you know, we thought Obi-Wan Kenobi was the depiction of a, a Jedi. And we find out now through the prequels that, that he is very much like a reformed Jedi living in the desert. He's very different than what the Jedi were. Um, and I think in the same way, uh, there is something unique happening with the story of Anakin that we naturally resist as an audience because we're told by Obi-Wan that Anakin fell to the dark side because he was he had some sort of lust for power, that he, he you know, he just he could not resist the, you know, this uh, dark side um, what it was giving him. And what we find out is that people believe that. It makes sense that Obi-Wan believes that. But what Anakin keeps to himself in uh, episode three is that it's completely, like he knows he's going to the dark side. He knows that it's the wrong thing to do. He just believes that the juice is worth the squeeze. I'm going to save my life. This is what it takes. This, no one else is worth it. The Jedi Council is not worth it. You know, the Sith aren't, whatever I have to do to keep this person uh, with me because because I've lost my mom, I've lost, you know, Qui-Gon Jinn, I've lost all these other people. And, and he so, can't lose her. And I, I, yeah, I will not go on without her. And it's a further tragedy that his friends, like Obi-Wan Kenobi or Bail Organa or whoever, believe that he just he got a lust for power and wanted to control everything. That was a means to the end. That wasn't the purpose of it. And there is really no reason for him to share it once it's done but it makes you look at the prequels a lot differently because you're not seeing the story of someone who was just wanted power. You're seeing someone who wanted the power to save the people he loved from dying, you know, and it was misunderstood by those around him. Yeah. It was motivated by love. And that's the interesting thing about Anakin's path to redemption. That was something that he, while he was, um, I don't, I, I don't want to call him evil because I feel like that, led him to it had a good intention but it went into selfish motives and that and evil actions out. clearly yeah yeah and right. that's why i have to agree with barbara on what you were saying before about the the entire saga pretty much following anakin's storyline you saw with luke in all three of the original series how he's he's very single-minded he never really changes there's a moment maybe where you think he might go over the dark side but he never quite does And that's where you see Anakin having a lot more depth. Yeah, Luke is fighting for the people he loves. uh, Leia, Han, Chewie. But he never never had that same depth that Anakin did in doing what he needed, in doing what he thought he needed to be done. Absolutely. And I think that that's what makes Anakin such a fascinating character is um, Darth Vader, I mean, is like, iconically evil as, you know, pop culture sees him as this, you know, huge, larger-than-life evil figure. Um, Was he really that interesting of a character until he was redeemed? I mean, seeing this larger-than-life evil character 
then become good, I mean, holy cow, that's, that's really impressive. But just as we were all saying a minute ago in terms of, you know, Anakin's path and his uh, downfall, in, in the first trilogy, the prequel trilogy, you see, just as you were saying, you see him not supported. You see him not receiving, having that um, positive reinforcement from his friends and his uh, chosen family. But then the first time that he gets that from his son, he is redeemed. And that's what it really takes in life is for us as human beings to have a support system, to have positive reinforcements that allow us to be as good as, as we can be. Well, and as, as Damien was saying earlier about it, I th- and, and I guess you're speaking directly to this too. I think that what we don't always realize we can learn from Star Wars as an audience member is there is a obviously a very exciting story here, a very Shakespearean story, but there's also this story about mental health and and how and empathy, how empathy changes people and how it changes things bigger than just you changes personal relationships, but also changes the world. Uh, and I think we are, it's easy to see um, the outside perspective from Darth Vader, but when you think about like how when he realized that he had a son still alive, that also, um, it it made him, I guess it's easy to relate in a way that like you can feel like you're dead inside, that a part of you is gone and it will never come back. And something, some sort of empathy or some sort of event can reopen things that you thought were never going to be reopened. Or, you know, like basically Anakin going, oh, I thought that person was dead. I thought that life was over for me and then that ability to ever have anything good was completely, that was over. And now I suddenly have to grapple with the idea of that's not over. And what does that mean? And what does that mean about me? Am I who I thought I was? And what does that mean about the actions I've taken? And I I just think that is such an important story. And and just to put a point on it, I I was watching this, this article or this uh, interview recently with Sarah Silverman, the comedian, and she was talking about a friend of hers who is a former white supremacist and how he now uh, works to get people out of these groups and to show them that they don't have to be part of these groups. And she spoke very well to how this individual talked about empathy and how empathy was what uh, got him out. That we tend to, as individuals, go towards where the love is. And if that love is coming to you from a group, that group can be a very dark group. That can be a very dark person, like Palpatine. But if he is offering love, if he is offering acceptance, then certain people are going to go towards that because they're not getting that anywhere else. Right, exactly. And I don't think it's a, a uncomplex situation. I don't think we can just be like, oh yeah, Darth Vader was redeemed and everything was fine and the people he killed, who cares? You know, I don't think that's the situation that we're talking about but i do think that there is a message buried in here about the power of empathy and how we can use that to make things better that that is actually the more powerful weapon than uh you know control or fear or any of these other things absolutely i totally back you 100 on that very well said um i i have a, an interesting list i kind of compiled um a little bit ago about interesting facts about episode two that I wanted to share. Um, one of them was according to George Lucas, this was per him saying this, that Obi-Wan's hiding in Genosis uh, asteroid field taught young Boba Fett a lesson that he uses 
to take advantage in his adulthood. I read that one. Having yeah. learned how Obi-Wan hid from him and his father, Boba Fett knows the trick Han Solo is hiding, uh, using to hide in episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. So I thought that was an interesting tidbit. I didn't know that. It's, it's funny because they can tie those things together. Again, appreciation when watching episode two, another viewing. Um also, of course, this one I knew already. Uh, when Anakin was slaughtering the Tusken Raiders, you can hear Qui-Gon trying to stop Anakin during the uh, scene where he was slaughtering them. And you can see um, that, or hear, rather, uh, his yeah. voice trying to stop him. So that was that's an interesting thing. Some people may not always catch that one. Um, but it was it's interesting how Anakin was so consumed that I mean, even even Qui-Gon couldn't even form like he couldn't even be there because it was just he was just dead set on doing what he was doing out of um, violence and revenge. But in spite. Um, spite. Yeah. And so I like that the way they tied that together. Um, and then uh, when Jango Fett jumps into gets into his ship. After his fight with Obi-Wan, he yes. bangs his head on the partially open door, <laughs> referencing the famous goof of Star Wars Episode Four, where the stormtrooper accidentally bangs his head on the door. Apparently <laughs> that's genetic. <laughs> that's, that was just brilliant that they did that. Because, I mean, like, when I noticed that, it wasn't until, I don't know, sometime into the prequels. And I just never really noticed that growing up. And when I saw right. it, it was the funniest thing. But the fact that I saw that they referenced it even more lends itself to, to a little more comedy. But I like that when you, you kind of take a flaw that you, that you did and you kind of can and make light of it. it. <laughs> poke fun yeah, at it. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. absolutely. Well, that pretty much sums up episode two for us, I feel. I think that um, going forward, I can't wait to cover episode three, which is one of my tops um, of the episodes. Um, but uh, anything uh, coming up for for you guys, uh, fan base press, how, how is everything going with you? Um, I think in terms of, uh, sadly, in terms of conventions and uh, yeah. interactions with folks, uh, we, we really don't anticipate that returning until the earliest of fall 2021. Um, so they, uh, they're already course. giving some dates now? Yeah, well, more like in, implying that they, there won't be a possibility to open up. I mean, we, we think of most of the conventions that we work with uh, will hold off until the last moment to, uh, to cancel because of uh, insurance, insurance. Uh, restrictions. So they get the money back for that they, they've uh, put in. But um, the word, you know, among the vendors is, yeah, we're most likely looking at New York Comic Con of next year being the earliest convention that might open and that, you know, will probably be lightly attended, I would think. Right. So we'll see. We'll see. Depending, yeah, depends on, you know, how things guidelines on attendance. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be well, rough. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll be doing lots of virtual stuff. Absolutely. And... Yeah. So, um, and, and we're, all of our comics are still, of course, yes. available for sale and when we're still shipping everything. And uh, for yeah. those folks who prefer digital media over physical media, uh, our entire catalog is available on Comixology as well as Hoopla. So if you have your library card uh, and you're in the U.S., uh, you can go virtually to your library or in person uh, if any libraries are open right now and check out our entire catalog there as well. Where can, where can folks find you guys, Fanbase Press? Sure, you can find us at fanbasepress.com. We're on all of the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, everything except MySpace. Where can folks find you, Avatar? Uh, I'm on Instagram at Avatar Stone B. Uh, fair warning, not a lot of stuff to see there. 
Uh, I'm also on Facebook, uh, just under my name, Avatar Stone. Uh, that's about it. Perfect. And you can find me at uh, Instagram at Damien underscore DeCarlo and making a geek underscore podcast. Support your local geeks, even during COVID. Uh, Fanbase Press, Avatar, it was really great seeing you guys. Stay real. I can't wait to get back together with all of you and go back to normal. <laughs> Hopefully. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, don't forget to hit subscribe and that little bell notification bell for more cool content. Until next time, everybody, stay calm and geek out. Good night.